How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is a man who surely needs no introduction, especially in the European ecosystem. Matt Robinson has already founded two incredible companies, Go Cardless and Nested. But not only is he a prolific founder in the ecosystem, he's also a prolific angel investor. But those are just the headlines. Listen to the real story on Founders Uncut. Matt initially studied law at Oxford University and went to work for McKinsey before he became a founder. But were either of those experiences even relevant to his founder journey? And how did he get on this crazy path? To be honest, I think those are probably the the least relevant facts. Um, I just love solving problems and always have done always well and therefore you know i had a business at school and i would have in many ways preferred to go and launch more businesses but luckily i was just about smart enough to figure out that you know i was really fortunate to be offered a place at oxford and it'd be a great place to kind of expand my horizons and ditto with mckinsey i would have loved to start another business then but again it was okay this is probably going to help me build bigger better businesses in the long run Um, but i kind of think it's it's either within you or it's something that happens to you outside where you see a problem and it just makes you want to solve it so much that you go and do it. Either you, that is kind of, yeah, it's either just a natural way of being or whatever. You can't learn it on a course or in a job. And that's why I hate the fact that it seems to be that we are so skewed towards people who come from those jobs or those universities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So if you had to go back and tell your 15-year-old version of yourself, like what's the best training to be a founder? What do you think you would tell yourself? Oh, good question. So... Funny enough, a friend of mine who I went to school with called me uh, a few years after we left uni uh, and said, hey, um, I really want to get into startups and I thought a good thing to do would be to go and become a management consultant. And someone said, you have to, you know, is it a good idea? And I was like, no, it's it's a fantastic career. I think it's great for getting a work ethic and loads of other stuff. But actually, if you want to go and start a company, either go and start a company or work in another startup and, and learn. And probably the latter is the better option. You know, when Hiroki, Tom and I founded Go Cardless, none of us had ever worked really in a startup before. Hiroki and Tom had like a little bit of experience, but we didn't know what a functioning startup should look like and kind of had to figure out everything from scratch. So I think go do it and, and if possible, get some experience working with really good people, but in a like hyper relevant context. Yeah. Can you just break some myths for us? Like, tell us, what does it feel like in the day to day of being a founder? Uh, I mean, terrible. <laughs> like, I, I love it, but I think it's kind of a form of sadomasochism you know by definition 
startups, what is a start? Startups are about growth. They're about change. And, and by definition, if you're seeking growth and you're seeking change, then you always want to be somewhere where you're not. And that's uncomfortable because you're not there yet. And therefore, no matter how far along you are, you know, you're still never satisfied and you're still never quite where you should be. And that's still the same at GoCardless. We're, we're, we're more than 10 years old now. We feel like we've done nothing. Yep. We feel like the whole journey is ahead of us and there's so many big things that we want to do and everything's broken on getting there because every new phase you have to do, you need, you know, new machines in place and new teams in place to make them happy. So it happens. Everything always feels broken. And that's the same at Nested, which is four or five years old now. Where again, we're still early on that growth journey, but we're nowhere near where we want to be. And, you know, in many ways, the, the least broken period is probably right when you start because you can kind of control so many things. But once you once you get going, everything just always feels broken. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a tangible difference in, you know, what you've done at Nested versus GoCardless because you had seen a journey already? Yeah. And I'm not, some things for the better and some things for the worse. I think there's a tendency to overcorrect. And therefore, mm-hmm. there's lots of things that I did poorly at GoCardless. I really thought, hey, I want to go out next time and, and do that a lot better. And, and then just went too far. So as an example, I was you know, a distinctly average manager at GoCardless. None of us had any real management experience. And one of the things that a real pain in people's ass because I just wanted to like, I was, I was too prescriptive and too directive and told, hey, this is how, this is what we want to do. This is how I want to do it, etc." And at Nested, I really tried to take a step back and give people a lot more freedom and a lot more autonomy. And I think in many ways, I went too far in that suddenly I wasn't completely on it and all over it and pushing it and driving it as much as I could have done. And certain things where I thought I was giving people autonomy, actually, I was kind of not giving them enough support. And I think, therefore, it's, there's this thing of like, okay, you know, I'd, I'd love to back second time founders because they've made all the mistakes. Like, no chance. There's, I'm still making new, fresh mistakes now, and I will be like on my third, fourth, fifth company. There's, there's too many out there to, to count. Um, and also, there's a tendency to ascribe failure to the wrong things. So you think, oh, hey, we failed because of this thing. And actually there are like a thousand reasons why you failed. So I think it's, you gotta be quite careful. Mm-hmm. When you do the postmortem of why something didn't work, you know, to, to your point on that, how do you figure out what you think is actually the signal you should pay attention to versus just all the other noise? Yeah, I think that's really, that's really quite difficult <laughs> and probably depends on the specific thing you're talking about. For us, I think, you know, we're generally talking about customer outcomes. So we want to focus on, okay, how do we, how do we make this happen for a particular customer? And, and that allows you to describe it something a bit more objective, which is, okay, at what point in the experience for this customer did it not add up to, to what we wanted to happen for them? And you can get, you can really drill into, you know, what happened al- along the way. Where I think it becomes really hard is if you take a step back to the business and say, okay, we, we did or did not manage to do this. Like, what was the reason for that? People could, could come out and say, oh, hey, it was timing in the market. It was competition. It was we overinvested in this thing, we underinvested in this thing. We don't live in a multiverse, so you never know. And it's those things I don't like. The kind of uh, root cause analysis I like is where we can go down to a customer outcome and say, okay, this is what we wanted to happen to customers. Why did that or did that not happen? What I hate is like when you step back and people write these, these, these essays on, why the thing didn't work and have this beautiful narrative that is out of their control. And it's like, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe it's not. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, it feels like if you keep the customer as the North Star, you probably can't go too wrong. Yeah, generally. And then even if you can't, the, the key is like, okay, we give those customers an amazing outcome and then how do we scale that? And like when you break it down into those two problems, you can see a little bit better at like which point 
at which point things are breaking down. Yeah, it's you actually once told me context is king. And as we think about like the second journey from the first journey, it must also be hard to figure out what's different because I think we had a conversation around boards and operators being on your board, right? And sometimes that's great because they give you really great advice and sometimes they oversubscribe, oh, this works because of X and so you have to try X, but it was a completely different scenario. Um, I think the best founders I've seen get advice from a lot of places, but they know what to listen to. And how do you think about that, right? How do you know which advice to follow, which advice to ignore and how to follow your gut? Yeah, it's it's really it's really it's really really tough because there's this uh, parable about this 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 guy who uh, um, he lives lives in a country and uh, he t- like turns eighteen and the next day they, they go to war and you know he, he has to go off to war like what bad luck the next day when he's riding out to say goodbye to his family he falls off his horse and breaks his leg he can no longer go to war like what good luck suddenly there's like a, an infectious disease with a pandemic in his town, like what bad luck that he has to stay. Like it's, it's really hard to figure out, right. What, what's good and what's bad advice. And also what are good and bad decisions. I tried to go back to both go Carlos and nested and pin down specific things that we did and say, okay, which, which were good decisions, which were bad decisions, but everything is so entangled that it becomes incredibly difficult to, to pick out like, okay, did we actually need to do that? Like, would we have got to where we get to today? And you get this like butterfly effect thing. So I think that's, that's really tricky. Um, and then being less vague, what I think is a bit easier is understanding the shape of what you're trying to build. So, um, as a perfect example, Cocardus and Nested are radically different businesses. And I think they're somewhat indicative of what we've seen in the, the broader space of a shift from growth at all costs companies to like calling unit economics companies where over the past 20 or 30 years, we've seen a whole methodology of doing and building and scaling businesses emerge really because of SaaS businesses and fit for SaaS businesses, which is growth at all costs. If your payback is less than six to 12 months, hey, just invest and acquire more customers because it's positive ROI. And the bigger you get, the, the more likely you are to be number one in space. And, you know, Therefore, let's just run it all, you know, run as fast as we can for as long as we can. And then we saw a whole kind of uh, segment of businesses emerging, like your kind of Ubers and your WeWorks, et cetera, where actually they don't have 80 or 90% margins built in. And that growth tool cost mentality doesn't make so much sense. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the ways that I think about this is what type of business are you building? What do you have to get right in order to be able to scale it? And part of that is obviously going to be the customer experience. If it's SaaS, like, GoCardus, we've never even had to have a conversation around margins, right? Because you have amazing margins because of space you're in. Whereas if that's something like a nested or, or another business with kind of more of an operational aspect, then it's not just customer outcomes. It's also your margins. And then, you know, those are going to both be kind of highly linked to how you scale because many acquisition yeah. channels get more and more expensive over time. So I think it's more... In terms of like what was a good decision, what was a bad decision, what's good advice, what's bad advice, the context is king piece that's most relevant is what kind of business you build in. What does it take to succeed in those businesses? And I think that's where it's dangerous. And that's where we still see all of these like crazy moves where people are saying, what the hell is, you know, Massa doing, pouring money into Uber and WeWork? And I think at times people just mistake what type of business is being built here. And, um, and also mistake the difference between kind of uh, genuine economic decisions and greater fall theory in practice. Yeah. 
You, so you've been a prolific angel investor now as well. How do you think about judging businesses on growth and unit economics? And you know, has it changed your view on building businesses now that you've also been investing in them? Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, I think it's been, I think it's been really helpful. And, and from that macro perspective, where really making me take a step back. And, and when we started, actually, there was this big ethos of it's not about the idea, it's all about the team. Like the idea doesn't matter. And I think it was quite healthy because before then, I think, it's like everything, it always gets taken to extremes. But before then, it all been about the business plan. Like, okay, this is an amazing idea. It's an amazing business. Let's go and fund it. And then things like YC changed that to actually, if you get the right talent with the right mindset and approach of build product, talk to users, they're going to figure it out. So the key is like getting the talent. But the bit that I think unites the two is the idea or the business is a vehicle for your success and basically sets a local maxima on what, on what you can achieve. And if you pick the wrong vehicle, then you're never going to be able to achieve certain things without like way beyond pivots, without significant changes in the business model, which are always hugely disrupted along the way. So that's, that's probably the biggest change for me is really think about the fundamentals of the business you're building, like what you're replacing, how big is that? What type of customer is it? Is it high frequency or low frequency? Is it high value or low value? What kind of cash flows does the company create? That's probably the most important question I ask myself. Uh, I've always obsessed about customers and I think that's really important to keep there. But then the second thing is the cash flows because sadly a company is only ever going to be as valuable as the cash flows it creates and therefore thinking about, okay, what kind of cash flows does that create? And therefore how much can we invest in that customer experience to, to, to make the thing work? And also what the shape of those cash flows are. If it's going to be really valuable in the future, you have to have, you know, significant growth of cash flows and also ideally durable cash flows. So can this business create can this business create durable cash flows? Can it, is it something that can grow significantly in an efficient manner? Yeah, it's funny. I think sometimes in the, in the private side of things and in an early stage, you know, there is a lot around team and product, but at the end of the day, things can be overhyped or underhyped, but the music stops eventually, right? And at some point you are creating cash flows in a growing business or you're not. And if you're going to be valued by the public markets or, you know, one half later stage rounds, it's just going to get tied to reality at some point. Yeah. And at, and at some point you've got to stop raising money from externally and you have to be able to fund things internally and that's going to come from your own cash flows and you look at the, the, the you know, like amazing businesses generally they're they're built on the top of kind of unbelievably strong cash flows where you know you can get your money now or you can get it later i know which one of those i prefer right you can have high margins or low margins i know which one of those i prefer you can have recurring or one-off i know which one of those i prefer and you can have at risk or not at risk revenue and again, if, if, you, if you're a company that's got like four out of four on the good side, you're going to create these great cash flows and you can almost, you know, you can fund your own growth really well internally. Yeah, I think thinking through these like elements of how do you make sure the business you're building is going to be sustainable in a number of ways. When you're an angel investor, you know, there's this concept of founder market fit. And I go back and forth with this. Like it is great to back someone who's like just deeply lived a problem for 20 years or 10 years and that's all they care about. But equally, just because you stumbled upon a problem that you think is really interesting and you care about it a lot doesn't mean you're not going to build a big company. You know, how much do you care about the founder having had a background in a certain space or them potentially just finding the opportunity and, and believing in it? So I try to be really open-minded, to be honest. Um, 
And I try to approach it the same way that I approach hiring people, which is I hate having a kind of rubric and a tick box exercise of, okay, if you've got ABCD, then you're in. Um, and I much prefer to think about what's the reason that this could succeed. Um, both with a new hire, like what's the reason why we should get really excited about this person and believe that they could be the perfect person? And the same with a founder or, or, or a startup. Like what's the reason to believe this thing could succeed? In my experience, like that's more important than the 999 reasons why they might not. And obviously if there's some kind of massive blocker that just makes no sense, sure. But rather than say, okay, I've looked at this, this candidate or I've looked at this founder or I've looked at this startup and here are like my 900 slight worries that I'm not sure if the timing's quite right or if the model's quite right or whatever. Like I've been doing this long enough to know that almost everything can change, right? But there's a couple of things that can't change. The founders can't change and the space is really tough to change. So as long as I'm kind of relatively happy with the, with the founders and relatively happy with the space, then I'm just looking for something that gets me really excited, which might be their product vision. It might be the product itself. It might be the initial traction. Um, it might be something about their background, but just something that says to me, Hey, this, this person, this, this thing could be special. Yeah. Amazing. Um, back to the company building for a second, you know, we've touched a few times on team, how team is everything and being able to create a culture where people can thrive. You know, it sounds like you've experimented with lots of different types of leadership styles. You know, what would be your advice to founders as they're thinking about building out their broader team? Yeah, I think the number one thing would be consistency. I think everybody sees all of these brilliant, one of the great things about the web is the amount of information out there on how to do things and all these amazing approaches to both individual management, team management, you know, company management. And I think one of the, one of the problems is like, you can't just piecemeal stick all these things together and expect them to work. I think the key is making them all add up. So, you know, you almost want one piece of paper on which you can write down Here's the vision, the mission, the values, the culture, the strategy, you know, and that should be consistent with the people you hire, the way you treat them, the way you run your office, the way you run your meetings, like all those things add up. And where I think things tend to go wrong is where there's a there's a misalignment between those two. Because all all styles can broadly all styles can work, right? Some some don't. But what I think people what I think doesn't work is when you have people pushing in different directions. The way I kind of think about good companies is, you know, they can't come from the mind of one person. They, they have to come from the mind of many people. And therefore, as a company, what you're trying to achieve is to find something to unite and get lots of people behind a common behind a common cause. And generally, that takes like some level of autonomy, but there are different degrees there. And then your new challenge becomes, okay, we want to attract these people. The way we're going to do that is by, you know, the combination of our vision and, and you know, and our values, etc. And then the new challenge is how do we get all these great people pushing in the same direction? And you can do that in a couple of different ways. One is by having like really strong central command and control and like, this is how it's going to operate. Another one is by having really strong values and culture and kind of openness and transparency, right? And there's many models in between. But the number one thing I think is picking a line and being really consistent on that. Because what's really tough is when you say you preach in your values, we're a really transparent, open organization. We want, you know, we give real autonomy, etc. But then over here, you've got like command and control practices at the management level. That doesn't work. 
Yeah. And I think to your point, like the values are not what you put on the wall, right? It's actually what you do every single day, how you make decisions, how you communicate to people, how you show up as an organization. Um, so we talked a little about it not getting easier, right? Um, but how does it feel in the founder seat? Like when you're on the second, I mean, most people only hope to maybe found one successful company and you founded two. And as you said, maybe you'll go on to found more. Does it ever feel easier in the day to day or does it feel just as hard? Um, yes and no. So there's a great quote, which I'm actually stealing from, I think it was Patrick Collison at Stripe was quoting, I think it's Greg LeMond, I think the US side case, where they asked, asked him and they said, like, you know, uh, does it get any easier? You know, you're now a world-class cyclist. Like, I find it really tough on the bike. Does it get any easier? He said, uh, it, it never gets any easier. You just go faster. And I think that's, a, that's how I think about running startups, right? And it never gets any easier. You just, you just go faster. Um, however, the one thing I would say is different is as a second time founder in certain areas, very restricted areas, I feel like you have cheat codes on certain things. You've kind of just done it before you've seen it before and you can almost skip that level. Um, mm -hmm. but those tend to be more the like around the fringes thing. You can't, there's no cheat code for product market fit. There's really good practices about how to do it, but. It just, it takes time to crack that. And there's no cheat code for Graduate to the next level of the game, but it doesn't mean it's any less difficult at that level, Precisely, right? precisely. Um, in terms of, can you share with us either some like really challenging moments you faced as a business or as a founder or scary moments just to kind of bring some color to some of the realities? Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Um, yeah, let me try and think of some specifics. I mean, the reality is I, I have a firm belief that every company faces an existential event every year of its existence, no, no matter how young or how old. And you're just lucky if you, if you realize and do something about it. And it might not be that it's existential this year, it might be in five years time that, that it hits. But I think that threat is always there. So, um, trying to think what I can share and what I, you know, look, you kind of the payments business. So I think all along there's constant existential threats of working with banks and doing the right thing and doing the right thing by the regulator, which you've always tried to abide by, but you're always kind of quite paranoid about that because you want to be really careful. And that, and that can be quite scary because you're always like, okay, we have to make sure we're doing the right thing here. And, and you know, uh, and that can put you in tricky situations, especially when you're trying to kind of grow fast. So I think there's constant stress and trauma there of, of finding the right line because if you don't grow fast enough, you, you won't reach that breakout or escape velocity in order to become a big business. But equally, you, you, you have to grow in the right way and make sure that you're doing all the right things and all your processes are scaling with you, which I think brings added stress. Nested, you know, has, has a lending aspect and, and also kind of financial covenants and various other things. So, for example, going into events like Brexit and COVID were really quite stressful. You've got live loans out there that you know, you don't have a clue what the performance of those is going to be. And we were really fortunate in both instances that we managed to manage our book really carefully to make sure that both ourselves and customers have really good outcomes. We were equally worried about us losing money as customers having loans that ended up being outstanding for much longer than they should have been. 
and then they're out of pocket. So I think those are those are really stressful moments, right? When there's a macro change and suddenly you've got customers who could be negatively affected, and also you, you know your performance could be negatively affected. That's that's really challenging. And then in turn, on the team side, I think what people miss a lot of the time is when you look at a company from the outside and it's got this up and to the right curve. You kind of zoom out and think, okay, they're just doing great. They must have the mildest touch. Like they grow every month. It must be really, really easy. On the inside, that is not what it feels like at all. Like all the time, probably at least 80% of what you're trying fails. And therefore you, you feel like a constant failure. Every month you grow is great. But if you're trying to grow exponentially, then the exponent just gets bigger every month. So the game gets even harder to win. And you're scrabbling to like, you were scrabbling to hit it this month. So how do you do it again next month? Um, everything's held together with sticky tape. So I think everything all along the way constantly feels like it's constantly feels like it's breaking. Well, if I'll give you one example, which, which, which just popped into my head and won't upset anybody. Uh, I remember in the early days, back to that example of doing the right thing with the regulator at Carlos, uh, we had a client who we worked for a few months to bring on to work with us and convince them to work with this kind of unknown startup who cannot be relied upon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and eventually convinced them to go with us, they integrated us, did everything, got us going, started taking payments. And then we went and had like a catch up with our bank and they basically said, hey, and they didn't even know about this merchant, but they said, hey, we, you know, we've got an internal thing where we no longer like merchants in this category, who these guys happen to be. And it was like our first big client who I'd spent yeah. months getting them over the line and basically had to, had to, let them know that, hey, we're really sorry, we've just wasted three months of your dev team time because we're going to have to cancel the contract and rip out this integration. And I remember what we tried to do, we tried to do it the right way. Um, I went round to the office. Hiroki claims he came with me, but so does Tom. So, uh, you know, there's some question marks here, but I went round to the office and said, look, we're doing it the right way. I'm going to go to them and tell them in person and I'll go and take the kicking and, you know, at least they can feel better about that. And it was a really horrible yeah. day. Um, I can't remember the literary term for when the weather like indicates the mood, um, but turned up like sodden at this office. And I think it actually did me a favor because as I told this guy and I'm like shivering and dripping wet, he, I think he felt so bad for me that after about three minutes of, of giving me what for, he just was decided to give up and feel sorry for me. Um, <laughs> One of the only reasons you can thank London weather. <laughs> precisely. Um, but yeah, no, there's, there's, there's plenty of those moments. Um, you know, fundraising is, is always a constant challenge. You never quite know if it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Anything could derail at any moment. Um, you know, there was some definitely, with our first round, there were definitely some moments where uh, it, it, it was a close run thing. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good depiction of what the founder seat feels like. So we're going to come up with time here. So last two questions for you. One, it's just a hard personal journey to be a founder, right? Even if you have co-founders, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of time and blood, sweat and tears you're putting in. Have you learned anything about how to manage that journey from a mental wellness and health perspective over the years? Oof. Uh, yeah, I think another kind of, trite literary quote but I think like know thyself right you're going to know what you can handle and what you can't handle and how you best handle things and set things up and again it's consistency if you keep trying to be a kind of leader that you're not and you keep trying to do the things you, you don't enjoy doing or you can't do you're going you're gonna to have trouble um, so I think you can but it's really important to know okay these are my strengths this is where I can play really well these are the things that I can't handle so much how do I build a team around me to help with those things where we can balance each other out 
And that's great as well because it gives other people an opportunity to, to step up and, and take on more. There's definitely a founder trait that I think is really advantageous, which is, uh, I remember someone told me again, I don't know if this is, this is how robust the science is, but supposedly people have kind of like a fundamental happiness line. And there are some people who have a really kind of a big range of emotions that they feel. And some people have a very thin range. And I think I basically have a line. So the best thing in the world can happen to me and I'm, I'm not really going anywhere and the worst thing in the world can happen and I'm still in the same place. And I think that's always been quite an advantageous uh, trait because it just you just deal with whatever's coming and, you know, uh, it's like the Kipling thing, right? Of treat, treat both disaster yeah. and glory as, the, you know, as an imposter or whatever. Yeah, I think my variance is wider. I'm going to have to work on that one. Um, and last question for you is for anyone listening or watching this, um, what can we do to be helpful? You know, what are what would you like people to do to be helpful to you? To me? Mm -hmm. Should they send you good deals? Should they send you... What, what's the thing that... Very kind you? question. Um, or, so I should be thoughtful. I think I ask this very often. Um, like, one, I think, is actually, like, nothing to do with me, but just... Like there's this concept of pay it forward in the US. That kind of always a concept which talks about nested of kind of good things come from good things. I think like just make the ecosystem a better place. Like forget me, but you know try and help people. And if you're a little bit further down the line and you figured something out, like go back and go back and help people. I've had various things where we figured something out and nested, or we think we've got a really good process for something, and people internally, like, I end up sharing all these materials with people of stuff we've developed. Or like, hey, here's our you know, performance review framework or his, and to be clear, we're not amazing at everything, but the things where occasionally when we do get them right, I'm like, why the hell are there all these external people like accessing our documents? And it's because like, hey, like, those tanks, this person, and they're going through exactly the same thing as us, so I just gave them access to see what we figured out. And that would be my, honestly, my number one thing is it's a small space, it's a small world, I plan to be in it for a long time, and I want to help as many people as I can along the way, and and, and you should do the same thing. And, and, and short of that, selfishly, we've got a new product coming up, which is going to be really cool. If you're looking to buy a house, you should use even. Um, and then on the investment side, if you're finding something really interesting, and especially if you're from a background that normally finds it harder to access capital because you just don't have the network or whatever it is, then, then reach out to me. I'd love, I'd love to chat. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Well, that is a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Matt. Really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Thanks, Matt, for being with us here today. As you heard from him, the best way to help him is just contribute to whatever ecosystem you're in right now. If you want more stories like this, go to www.kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and you're not doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for being with us here today. And if Matt's story resonated with you, join us again on Founders Uncut.